if you really want someone to embrace your software, to buy it again, to recommend it to their friends, you need to sit down with them and say, you know, Chris, you now have this software. What's going to take for you to be comfortable with it? Welcome to Manufacturing Happy Hour, the podcast where we get real about the latest trends and technologies impacting modern manufacturers. Manufacturing Happy Hour. Each week, we interview industry experts that are at the top of their craft and give you the tools, tactics and strategies you need to take your career and your business to the next level. And now your host, Chris Lukey. Hey, it's episode 129. Today, we're going to learn how reshoring, sustainability and customer success are helping manufacturers win. Our guest this week is Sean Murray, Vice President of Customer Success at Bright Machines. Now, I'm sure probably almost all of you have heard about Bright Machines by now, despite the fact that they just came onto the scene towards the end of 2018. Simply put, they are on a mission to get people to rethink everything they've known about manufacturing, and they're doing this by pioneering software-defined automation for electronics assembly. Sean's going to simplify this for us in just a second, but here are three more things you can expect from this episode. First, we'll hear about Sean's background, including a pretty unique early career experience to kick off the interview. Second, we discuss reshoring and sustainability. We'll talk about the things manufacturers need to consider when reshoring, and we'll also hear more examples of what sustainability looks like in action, and how it's not just good for the environment in the annual report, but legitimately good for business as well. Finally, and this is an area I was personally excited to hear about from Sean, we discuss customer success. This function has been around in the software world for quite a while, but it's honestly pretty new for a lot of industrial companies. So if standing up a customer success organization has been on your mind, definitely pay attention to this part of the interview. As always, if you want to learn more, if you want to connect with Sean or Bright Machines, we've got all the resources over at the show notes page at manufacturinghappyhour.com slash 129. And hey, if you're enjoying this show, if you liked this episode, or if you've been listening to Manufacturing Happy Hour for a while and you love what we're doing, hey, consider leaving a five-star rating and review over at Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. Before we get rolling, I do have a couple quick announcements. First, shout out to one of our newest sponsors of Manufacturing Happy Hour, Reuters. You're probably familiar with them as the news organization based over in the UK, but I also want to put the spotlight on an upcoming event that they have going on in Chicago, Illinois on May 17th and 18th, 2023 called Supply Chain USA. They are bringing together the end-to-end supply chain to share new best practices and strategies so that you can transform supply chain from a cost center into a value generator. This is your chance to be one of over 900 executives from Fortune 500 retailers, manufacturers, and forward-thinking logistics organizations that are shaping the future of supply chain operations. I'm going to be there. I'm going to be leading a couple panels. You have an opportunity to join us as well by going to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash supplychainusa to claim your spot today. Again, that's by Reuters Events taking place May 17th and 18th, 2023 in Chicago, Illinois. So that's one event we've got coming up, but also even earlier on Thursday, March 23rd, 
We're going to be doing Manufacturing Happy Hour live in Cincinnati, Ohio at Rheingeist Brewing. This event is hosted by CBT Company, great electrical distributor based out of Cincinnati. And this is going to feature a panel discussion on the future of food and beverage. So we're going to have folks from Rheingeist. We're going to have people from the Cincinnati manufacturing community there sitting in on this discussion. And there are a limited number of seats for this event. Not only is it a live podcast, we're going to be doing brewery tours. We're going to be hanging out, getting to meet other leaders in the industry. I highly recommend you think about it attending this event if you are in the Cincinnati area. Since seats are at a premium, do me a favor. If you want to attend, shoot me an email with the subject line Cincinnati to info at manufacturinghappyhour.com and I will get you on the shortlist for that event. Again, email me at info at manufacturinghappyhour.com. Subject line Cincinnati. It would be awesome to see you at Rheingeist Brewing for Manufacturing Happy Hour live on March 23rd, 2023. Anyway, now that we've got that preliminary call to action in place, I think it's time to head to warmer weather to meet up with Sean Murray. So, Sean, welcome to Manufacturing Happy Hour. Unfortunately, we can't be having this conversation in person today, but if we were having this discussion over a drink, where might that be? It could be anywhere in the world. Paint the picture. So, it's a, you're going to get a biased answer from me. So, for the, for the first time in my life, I went to the Florida Keys this weekend visiting some friends and uh, didn't realize how beautiful it is. So, you, you've heard about Key West, maybe it gets a little crazy, but if you get a little out of Key West, fantastic beach bars where you have these tiki hut looking places with wonderful rummy fruity drinks but they also have excellent beers so that's probably what i'd be drinking a beer at a tiki bar looking over uh blue water in, in florida recency bias i was just doing that two days ago so <laughs> that's where i'd be that's a-okay with me nothing nothing about having a drink talking about manufacturing in sunny florida right now while it's nine degrees where i'm at sounds like yeah. a bad thing so <laughs> i'm i'm all for it so well hey I'm, I'm interested to get your your we're having a drink answer to this question um because you know you work for bright machines you have a lot of insights across the industry in general so we're going to cover a lot of ground today but one of the things that sticks out when when I see something about bright machines is is software driven manufacturing, right? You know, how do you define that or how do you describe that term to someone as if you're having a drink with them at a bar in the Florida Keys? Sure. Yeah. So software defined manufacturing. If if you look at uh, much of the transition manufacturers have gone through in the last let's 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 say twenty years, really, where you're trying to use data in a way that is more meaningful and make your you know your, your your production process more efficient and make yourself more profitable and all the things manufacturers are trying to do with more data, you know, getting past whiteboards and, and spreadsheets and into actual data. Much of the journey for many manufacturers goes from, I have this hardware and now I'm going to try to get some software I can throw on top of it and try to figure out how to get stuff out of my, out of my production line that helps me run it better. Software defined manufacturing is the other way around. So instead of, if, if everything were greenfield, if you were to say, um, I know I have to build this many widgets, but what's the best way to do it? Um, using software to really define the flow, define the tools you have, but really from the beginning, thinking about the data. Because the data is, we now know, probably the most important part. It's the thing that's going to make you more competitive, more sustainable, keep your operations going when the next 
unforeseen thing happens. Um, that data is so important. The software in place first, helping to determine, you know, your design for manufacturing, tools you use, um, uh, you know, that that's the real, that's the real value. And, and not everyone can do that, right? You've already got your production going. So the idea is then to have a partner that created their solutions with software-defined manufacturing in mind. And, and that's, that's kind of what Bright Machines is doing. It's like uh, you get a greenfield uh, solution for your solution, even though you're up and running and have been for maybe 50 years. But, um, but the idea is we're not just cobbling together a variety of solutions. We have a full stack that was designed from software first to get the data, to get the right information uh, in the beginning. So that's in, in a simple form, that's kind of the idea. I think that's perfect because I've actually never thought of it as simply as you just described it before. Just making that 180 of thinking, hey, we've got a bunch of machines on the plat plant floor. How do we put software on top of it, right? What you just said was, hey, you got to start thinking software first, right? Software defined manufacturing and then figure out everything after that. I I've, I've got another question to piggyback off of that then. How many people in the greater manufacturing world, this is a, this is a, world according to Sean answer. How many people do you think are starting to think of things this way? Are most people still thinking machines first, software second? Oh, that's, that's a great question. So there's some very vocal, very forward people that have been talking quite a bit about, again, the data first, the software first. But I would bet the majority of manufacturers are still kind of dealing in, in the reality of, I have all this hardware and, and now I need to try to bring it to the next the next level. So I'd probably say it's 30, 70, right? 30% of people are really thinking, no, I understand the data is most important. Um, now that 30% is probably leading industries. Those are the folks that um, honestly are, have taken a leap forward and are kind of passing some of their competitors um, because there's so much value there. There's, there's, there's gold in, in those hills, right? There's, there's so much value in that data that if when you get it, when you have the real information you need to run your 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 business, you start making more money, you start being more competitive. And and so that 30% or whatever that number actually is uh, of really kind of uh, people who embraced software first or or, or uh, some approach to data first, um, they're taking the lead and they're and they're out speaking more and they're more visible. So you'll see that in the industry leaders in the world. So, uh, but but we run into a lot of a lot of manufacturers that are still struggling with the you know how to keep up and they do have a whiteboard at the end of the line and, and someone who you know tallies it up with a pencil and uh they're doing the best they can um but it's uh it's, it's just harder it's it's a different playing field when you're competing against the big data folks that makes a lot of sense that in intuitively i follow along with that and i have a feeling these these topics will come back up in the conversation but uh you know, hey, we're sitting on the beach and, and I'm just getting to know you for the first time. So what I have to I want to get to hear a little bit about your story first. And if I look at your let's say your LinkedIn profile, I, I maybe tell me if I'm wrong, but I feel like I saw a career arc where you've had an incredible career in the electronics industry in many ways. And I feel like you started in customer support. You have a lot of business development experience in between. And now you're back in the customer success realm. Did I see that right? Or tell us a little bit about your career journey. Yeah, completely right. So um, uh, what you don't see on there is that my, my first real job of, of note, the thing that actually got me into manufacturing, um, something I never thought I would end up in was 
when I was in college, I started working at uh, M&M Mars. I was working at a candy factory and, um, you know, part-time and, and, you know, on plant shutdowns. And it was the first time I saw real automation. And again, this is 1989. I'm aging myself. So 1989, it's a real automation. It was a lot of really manual conveying and just sort of material management kind of stuff. But to me, it was magic. It was like Willy Wonka. It was like up in the ceilings and uh, huge flows, just bringing materials. Again, they're making candy. Um, but they're huge flows of materials. And, uh, and I fell in love. Right? So I fell in love with, with manufacturing, but really automation. Like it was uh, uh, far more interesting, far more exciting than I thought it was going to be. Uh, mind you, I'm in a, in a factory in Hackettstown, New Jersey. It's, it's not the most beautiful place, but to me it was, right? So to me, it was just amazing, all this, this automation. So when I got out of, uh, out of college, um, you know, uh, my, my first thought was I'm going to get into some, something sort of techy. Uh, but I want to get back to automation. So I started um, uh, with IBM, but wherever they'd put me sort of, and, and I ended up in um, in a sales mode, a sales role or sales e-roads roles. And I, and I didn't love it. Like it was interesting. I was dealing with customers, but I still didn't feel like I was getting into the business. So I took a jump to uh, Philips Electronics, got into uh, surface mount uh, automation. And uh and I wanted to work with customers on a more meaningful level. So I got into pro, you know, uh, product management. So I was sort of the services aftermarket product manager, which ended up being really just uh, you know, a, a more professional approach to customer success. I loved it, right? So I started to get into you know, the, the customer shoes, learning the challenges they had and, and really managing um, you know, the, the solutions my company was providing in a way that made the customer uh, you know, benefit, make them more successful. And, and that's, you know, and that to me was the most meaningful part of the business, uh, except uh, I have a big mouth. So I was a product manager. So I was creating all these, I thought were excellent solutions that my sales people weren't selling. And I kept going to the sales manager and saying, hey, you're something wrong with your sales guys. They can't sell this stuff. It's perfect for customers. What's wrong with them? And the sales guy said, hey, I'm tired of hearing this. You're a sales guy too now. And so I got put back into a, uh, kind of the go-to-market side of the business, um, which by now with the customer background uh, became the same thing. So I realized that if you approach sales from a standpoint of customer success, what we call it now really, but really at the time, you know, just supporting the customer, making sure you're really thinking about the customer first, you're going to do really well at sales. Uh, and so then I spent 15 or so years, uh, Philips and Panasonic, uh, selling automation uh, on the go-to-market side. Uh, I got back into Bright, uh, really, uh, um, well, yeah, I, I was, I was having trouble with the, the kind of the speed at which some, uh, some large, wonderful tech companies were, were moving to bring real solutions to customers. Uh, and I wanted to find a, 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 a company that was more, uh, more focused about moving fast and really delivering real value. And that was Bright. So, uh, Bright brought me in. And from day one, uh, I was able to do both the go-to-market side and, and the customer success side. Uh, and then being a scale-up, once we got big enough, I could switch over to customer success full-time. Uh, and so to me, it does look like an arc of customer success and to go-to-market and then back to customer success. But it, it's the same thing. Like, to me, it's always been the same thing. I've never been a hit-and-run salesperson that just kind of wants to get the order and go. I want to build the relationship. I want to make sure I'm delivering so much value. The customer has no reason to ever talk to anyone else. So they're going to keep buying solutions from us because it helps them. 
and and that approach to customer success to me uh, is sales. Sales is that approach to customer success. It's the same thing, um, but it looks it, it looks like I dipped into two uh, uh, different job functions. But it's to me, it's all making sure your customers are wildly successful with the solutions you provide them, and uh, and the money is a byproduct. They'll they'll keep giving you the money. You'll keep giving them solutions, but. Just make sure they're 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 winning with what you've given them. We're uh, we're going to come back to customer success a little later yep. there, but there was something at the start of the answer that is very important that I think I heard Dave and Vlad from the Manufacturing Hub podcast asking you about, which is you worked at Mars, you worked at a candy factory. I mean, there's there's a little bit of a how it's made element to this show. What what can can you share? What candy you were making, or what what candy you got to see made while you were there? Oh yeah, I mean, I mean, at the time. So again, dating myself, the Hackettstown, New Jersey M M&M and M Mars facility was the only facility in the world making M M&M and Ms at the time. Uh, there's more now, but um, so they made massive amounts of M and Ms. And and again, small town boy from New Jersey, the how it's made element was the was the most magical thing because uh, just the the sheer volume of single of the single product, right? So they they do peanut and they did and the plain, but. Uh, so two products, um, but they had to just do it in so much volume. So it was, like I said, like Willy Wonka. There was massive tanks of freshly made liquid chocolate. And there was huge hoppers uh, of just the M&M spinning to get the shine on them and, and just to watch them all pour out. And you could fill a tractor trailer with, with just the amount of product that would come out uh, on like an hourly basis. Blew my mind. And those times, like those cleanup jobs. We'd have to go into a room where there was a spill, and of course they'd throw the, the it's food. You got to throw it away, or they'd they'd actually make it for uh, for farm feed. But um, but you'd be up to your waist in M and M's with a snow shovel, shoveling candy, and it was just like this is great. Like <laughs> this is yeah, this playground and the most wonderful thing. But yeah, it was just M and M's, but for the world at the time, huge volume. That's so cool. I can just picture at least some part of the process where. It's probably not a literal waterfall, but just seeing this massive rainbow of M&M colors just flowing through. At least that's how I envision it. It's kind of like <laughs> that, yeah. So that's so cool. That's so cool. I'm sure someone out there is wondering, do they color them first and then like they all come together at some point? That's a, that's at least one thing that's on my mind. So, yeah, I guess I probably didn't sign an NDA. This was 30 years ago, but uh, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how secret this is. No, there's a separate <laughs> hopper for each color. They add the color into these, and it looks like a giant cement mixer, um, essentially spinning uh, to add the color and then, of course, add the shine. Um, and then they've put it through a tiny typewriter where you hit the M on it. But that's not true. Um, but uh, no, it goes into various colors and then it gets blended together in the right proportions. At the, at the time, it was very manual. A lot of uh, quality control was just people who had the right idea for, no, that color looks a little off. Like there wasn't really much of a scale. There's just these experts on color, these experts on mix. There's too much of the brown instead of not enough of the green, they would just know by eye as they went to the bigger batches. I'm, I'm sure it's now all automated with, uh, you know, with AI and, and, and vision, but at the time it was just people making candy yeah. for 30 years and, and knew what it looked like. Oh, I, I'm, I'm sure there are some changes to that process from, uh, from 30 years ago, but I appreciate you giving that, uh, I'll say that surprise behind the scenes a little bit into that, but, uh, now for something completely different. Let's talk about reshoring. <laughs> Let's talk. Uh, it's probably one of the bigger 180s I've made on the show. You know, I've got a very 
general question to start it off, and I'd love your your quick answer to this. Why is reshoring front of mind when it comes to staying ahead in manufacturing today? Yeah, so again, I, th- I think and it's, hard to, it's hard to give a quick answer on something you're passionate about, but I'll do my best. So I, I think in the past, there were sort of broad stroke approaches to where you build, right? It was sort of like everyone thinks it's a good idea to go here, so we'll go here. And then now it seems like it's going over here, so we'll go over here. Um, I think what's happening in, in reshoring is, I know, uh, and effect of this, but what's happening is manufacturers are, are thinking it through, like what makes the most sense for the customer base I'm trying to reach, my supply chain that I have. Uh, and quite often the answer is, yeah, you should build where your customers are. It's better for the world, better for the environment. It's, it's more sustainable. It's more, you know, it's, uh, you're rocked less by interferences, uh, and you get, you know, more feedback directly from your market. So it makes a lot of sense. Um, you're not just chasing the, the, you know, the, the cheapest manufacturing dollar based on a spreadsheet. You're looking at everything else. You know, it's, it's supply chain, it's government, it's macro. But so it's, it's really, you know, a manufacturer taking the time to dig in and say, what makes the most sense for my business to ensure uh, that we're able to meet our market, uh, or meet our sales goals, deliver what we have to do. Um, so it's just, it's more intelligent. It's a more intelligent approach that often results in reshoring is the right answer. There's some industries where it might still make sense to have a super center in a low cost part of the world. Um, and I'm sure that that'll, that'll happen for some manufacturers. But for the vast majority, they're seeing that when you factor in sustainability, especially, you know, reshoring to where your market is makes a lot of sense. So a, a follow-up maybe to get more specific around that question is, you know, I feel like flexible manufacturing, or I'm sure this ties into software-defined manufacturing as well. You know, let's say we're, we're, we're reshoring here to the U.S., right? How, does, how do flexible solutions play into a reshoring strategy? It's a, a huge enabler. So, you know, when, um, <clears throat> when labor costs is a big difference, right? So when you reshore, you may deal with, of course, higher labor costs or, you know, other costs that are higher on, on paper. Um, you, you mitigate that in a, in a few ways, but uh, one very powerful tool uh, to mitigate the difference in labor costs, a higher labor cost, is if you can change over. If, you get, if you're flexible with your your hardware systems, which in the past automation was very inflexible. Uh, sometimes you'd have huge customized lines that could only pump out a volume of products. Um, with flexible automation, flexible manufacturing, you can build lot size 10 of something and switch over to the next product and the next product, which means your, your, uh, your higher priced workers um, are, are more effective. They're more sort of, uh, they're utilized in a better way. They can build higher margin products, they can build a bigger set of products, but it, it gives the company, the, the manufacturing company, uh, a, a three-dimensional playing field to go on as opposed to just cost, you know, just cost. So we have to hit, hit it with volume. We're going to do that somewhere low cost. Now you can say, no, to meet all of our market demands, we're going to build 20 different SKUs on the same manufacturing floor using our uh, higher, you know, higher higher paid uh, employees um, who, by the way, are probably happier with their jobs and, and making a better living and all those other things. So, I mean, it's, he said it helps in a lot of ways, but the flexible manufacturing is the key. If it's, we still have rigid fixed manufacturing lines that they can only build one product. It's very hard to do that uh, closer to your market. You do almost have to look at how do we get a, 
a super center somewhere to, to supply the world. So for the manufacturing leaders out here listening to this, many of whom, probably about 80, 85% of our audience is based here in the US, you know, for those folks that are going through their own reshoring journeys right now, what's your advice to them? What's what are the key areas to focus on? I I've seen upskilling and reskilling playing to this strategy as well as manufacturing. What's your candid answer, call to action around this? Yeah. So to me, the market, the market, the world has changed so much uh, in support of reshoring and uh, and upskilling your workforce is um, is is a different world right now. Meaning, there's help out there. There's so much help out there. So there's local organizations. There's community colleges. There's the uh, you know the, all the jobs uh, groups from of various names in various places uh, in the U.S. That, that have these networks of, uh, of sort of educational systems. So for small manufacturers, you can typically find, you know, uh, a local, local chamber of commerce, commerce or a local uh, uh, community college or college that can train often for free um, some, some of your employees that need some fundamentals. You know, what are the fundamentals of electronic manufacturing, the fundamentals of, uh, of even automa automation process that, um, that, that that network didn't exist 20 years ago, for instance. I mean, there was um, uh, really almost a big focus away from that kind of education in the U.S. Uh, when much of the the manufacturing jobs left. Um, so now, for for manufacturers, as you look at your reshoring journey, don't assume you're not going to get be able to find uh, experienced or trained workers. You 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 can. And for your existing workforce, you can get them trained in, in ways that are much more affordable than they had been in the past, uh, and and that's a also a game changer. You know, it's uh, it, it's chicken egg as as manufacturing comes back, more of these wonderful solutions will 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 grow. Um, but we're at a sweet spot now where it seems like there's almost more infrastructure than there is people taking advantage of it. So there's there's you know for uh, again for manufacturers. That want to step up uh, the the skills of their people to help them uh, succeed more at their jobs and be more happy in their jobs. Um, just check your chamber of commerce, check your local community college. I, I can almost guarantee three phone calls in, you'll find someone who's willing to train your people at a very affordable price. And again, then you've got a more talented workforce, more content workforce, you know, happier at their jobs because they're doing more interesting things. Uh, so, and and that's. Uh, hugely beneficial, uh, and when you, yeah, but it's a game changer, I think, in in the U.S. right now. So, you know, speaking of game changing things in the U.S., reshoring, reskilling—that's not the only area that that's showing tangible change, right? Another area that I've seen you talk about quite a bit in articles and on podcasts is sustainability and. I, I don't know why it's been such a big topic just this year here in 2023 on Manufacturing Happy Hour. I've seen it like come up in every interview we've done lately. Um, not that we didn't talk about it before, but it's just been such a trending topic on the show. Uh, I want to ask you a few questions around sustainability. And I think the first one, kind of going back to where we started, why is software defined manufacturing a key part to sustainability? Let's weave it into what you're doing now. Sure. Yeah. If... um. If you look at um, you know what uh, what what server farms did 15 years ago, so the, the whole idea with a server farm, of course, is that uh, you've got 
you know, hundreds and hundreds of, of servers in working in, in conjunction with each other. If something happens to one of them or 10 of them, uh, the, the service that's provided doesn't change. Meaning, um, you know, there's a, the sprinkler system goes on, it kills 10% of the servers. All that happens is that the data then gets routed through the functional servers, the users of the, the web service or whatever else that's coming out of it don't really feel much of a difference. It might be a little slower, might be a little glitchy, but they're still going to stay up. So the, the idea around sustainability and software-defined manufacturing is that you can define your manufacturing that way as well. So you're building you know, widgets or radios or, or whatever that's coming off your, uh, your manufacturing line, your, your floor, uh, with the data the right way, uh, if something happens, the sprinkler system goes on and kills 10% of your manufacturing lines, um, you can just route, you know, route your manufacturing to other lines. It's flexible enough that you can go from building widget A on this line today to widget B tomorrow because the widget B line is down for some reason. Um, it's the same kind of idea. So you, you build that sustainability in your product design and in your, your manufacturing floor so that when things happen and manufacturers know all kinds of things happen. That's the nature of the job is you wake up every day and go, what's going to happen today? You know, and, and you don't know, you're going to walk in and there could be, you know, some people are out sick or the supplier can't send his, these parts, but he sent these and these are wrong. And there's always things that happen. The software that you prepare for that, um, flexible manufacturing and flexible automation that you can adjust to that. Um, no problem. We'll just shift over to this lot. We'll shift over to this product. We'll put our workers on, on this, uh, this function today and, and the next function tomorrow because they're trained and ready to do that. So, I mean, it's that, that's the sustainability focus and, and, the, and the, it's, it's, it's no wonder why it's a big topic. The last two years have, have sort of gobsmacked everyone. It was the, it was the biggest, you know, uh, interruption in, in manufacturing in my career. Um, and if you look historically, you know, outside of world wars, it's, it's, it's right up there with, with things that interrupted, uh, manufacturing and wasn't foreseeable. So, you know, for a global supply chain and, uh, disruption, smart companies are all thinking about sustainability now, you know, but when the next thing we can't plan for happens, how do we plan for it? Uh, <laughs> that's. Uh, you know, on on that note, I, I saw you mention this before as well around, hey, reusing and recycling, for example, in sustainability can be used to create new revenue streams. So, hey, opportunities for companies to build out new revenue streams by being sustainable. I'd love to maybe hear where you've seen this play out in practice. If you have a specific story, a general story to talk about, hey, this is how you know, the stuff people are making can be repurposed. So that way, maybe the supply chain impacts aren't hurting someone as much, or maybe you're just opening up a new revenue stream that you didn't think about before. I'd love to hear some of your stories from the field in this regard. Sure. I'll, I'll give you one general one uh, that was given to me years ago, and then I'll give you a specific example. But so early in my sales career, I went to as an automotive main, it was Delphi. I went to Delphi Automotive in, in Kokomo, Indiana. It was just so long ago, it doesn't matter. And uh, I was explaining at the time we were selling surface mount equipment and uh, explained how our machines would last seven years. And this guy stopped me and he was an older gentleman and uh, he was from Kokomo. And he said, you have to understand, you know, we're farmers at our heart, some of us. And, and the way we look at things is the way we look at a tractor. And he's like, my grandfather got a tractor hundred years ago. It plowed the field. It did everything it was supposed to do for many, many years. We fixed it when it broke. We kept it running. Uh, when that tractor stops working, we're going to lift it up on blocks 
we're still going to use the motor. We're going to put a belt on it. We're going to use that to, to run our our, uh, our mill. And we're going to start uh, breaking down wheat into flour with it. Um, when that stops working, well, we're still going to, you know, we're still going to use it. And named another way they would use it. And, they, and at the end, the very end, we're going to put it over and plug a hole in our fence with it. And for 300 years, this tractor is going to be spilled us on the farm. He goes, that's what we expect with, from our, our manufacturing. Like that we, we expect the hardware we bring in to be useful in more than one way, in multiple ways, to be reconfigurable, to be flexible. Super interesting concept. It was back in the 90s and the media kind of was like, it's a great idea. Well, manufacturers now are still sort of operating that way, right? So um, when you when you invest in in, uh, in manufacturing equipment, um, for most manufacturers, it's not viable to have something that just punches out the one product, uh, you know, a million a day, every day for two years till the model type changes and then we throw it away. Um, that That's not practical. So we have, you know, we have real, uh, you know, real manufacturers, name brand uh, companies that are looking for, you know, manufacturing to order. Um, you know, I want a production line that I can build one of Model A, two of Model 3, uh, or B, uh, 10 of Model C, and then back to Model A again, uh, real time. Uh, and, and, and that is, you know, the, the, the highest form of reusing and recycling your manufacturing equipment. It's, it's doing it on a daily basis for 20 years where you're any model type that comes in, we can just shift over, no problem. Uh, the NPI process is very quick. The changeover time is incredibly quick. Um, and we're just going to keep reusing this line uh, in, in, in real time uh, over and over again. So, I mean, that's the, that's the highest form of, of how manufacturers are addressing sort of reusability um, now. Um, but there's also just the whole, you know, the, the traditional retooling of a factory is now, you know, uh, something most manufacturers really want to avoid. Um, when I put it, when I put something on your, on your, on my floor, I want to be able to change some tooling, change some software and have it do something else. Um, and, and avoid chucking this in a landfill in five years. Uh, and that's, you know, that's the simpler, more practical way that most manufacturers are now thinking about reusability and, re and the sustainability. Um, and of course, you know, when, when they, when they go through their purchasing models and they decide they're going to buy this thing. To know there's a resale value is is revolutionary. That they could sell their automation equipment to another company in five years. That's a game changer because now suddenly there's residual value um, that doesn't exist with customized automation. It, it just doesn't. You, know, you can pull some computers off. You could pull a conveyor belt out, but uh, customized fixtures only build the widget they were built to uh, to make. So. That's, you know, it's a whole different focus on, on companies that are looking to be more profitable, looking to be more uh, long lasting in their, in their investment. Uh, it's, it's a requirement now almost. So I like the, the pragmatic stories and tips and background you've given us around sustainability before that reshoring. There's one other area I wanted to dive into today before we wrap things up and and that's your, you're the vice president of customer success at Bright Machines. And I think that's when I saw your title, I'm like, this is something we have to talk about because I, we talked a little bit about before I hit record, you know, for over 10 years, I've been in the manufacturing industry. And for five and a half of those years, I live out, I lived out in the Bay Area. You know, I, I got to see customer success 
be an integral part of software companies while I was there. But I feel like customer success is kind of a new thing here in manufacturing a little bit. So I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts. How, how does a manufacturer stand up a customer success organization? And maybe even before that, in a quick answer, like what is customer success? There might be sure. someone listening to this that's like, I don't, I don't even know what you're talking about. Sure. So yeah, at, at the highest level, customer success is really just a, an increased focus on what it takes for the customer, the, the end user who, who's trusted you with uh, their money uh, to take your solution. Um, you, at, at the very highest level, just ensure that that customer knows how to operate it, knows how to use it, that they're getting as much value out of that, that, uh, that in my case, automation line as possible. I want my customers to be filthy, stinking rich because they made a decision to partner with Bright Machines. Like that, that at the heart, basic level, that's what it is. Um, and it's true, This the concept of customer success versus customer support started in Silicon Valley. It started with software. Um, because software products are, tend to be you know, new and cutting edge. Uh, they tend to have their own, in the past, you know, their own specific user interface and way of working. So if you really want someone to embrace your software, to buy it again, to recommend it to their friends, you need to sit down with them and say, you know, Chris, you now have this software. What is it, what's going to take for you to be comfortable with it? How am I going to make sure you're going to use it? Do you know how to down, you know, do you know how to put it on your computer? Do you know how to sign in? Do you know how to get to all the features you wanted? And then you don't just walk away. You stay with that customer. You check in periodically on a, you know, monthly basis or quarterly basis. You're still using it. How's it working? You know, we got, you build into the software features and know how often you're using it. Make sure you're using it, you know, uh, often and you're not afraid to, you know, use it, Think, things like that. On the manufacturing side, you know, and, and, and historically, you'd have a big body of people that were doing manufacturing for a long time. So when you sold them a product, you know, a, a manufacturing, even automation uh, product, there's people there that knew how to use it. You know, and you could pretty much drop it off with some manuals and, and you know, this historically um, and a little bit of training and, and then the person would use it. And then you'd go into customer support mode. If the customer called, so, you know, the machine broke or I don't know how to do this one thing, then you help them. Um, well, now we're into software to find, you know, uh, manufacturing and we're into a different world where there's not as many people, uh, humans doing manufacturing jobs. So that whole you know, body of experience and, uh, and, and really sort of uh, tribal knowledge that existed 20 years ago in the U.S. isn't as, isn't as great now. You know, there's a, a decade or two where not a lot of young people went into manufacturing. Um, so that body of, of uh, knowledge is less. So the, to approach manufacturing now with a customer success mindset is, is really just to recognize that the market has changed a bit, that there's not as many uh, manufacturing gurus around as there used to be, uh, and that the automation is more advanced. There's more bells and whistles, there's more features. So let's not assume anyone knows exactly how to use it. So you, you go on, you know, you, you approach onboarding the product uh, like you would a software product. You know, we're, we're delivering this, here's what it looks like, here's where it's gonna be, here's how it operates, what can we do for you to make sure you're as successful with it as possible? And for some customers, that's full service. We're going to be on site and ramp up and train you for a long time. Other customers, it's, uh, you know, you know uh, we'll do all the work for them. 
uh, for an extended period of time. So they won't focus, the customer won't focus as much on training, for instance. Uh, but it's just determining what's the right mix of solutions for that customer and then staying with them, you know, periodically, every month, every quarter, at least, you know, how are things going? I see you're running the line at 98%. Would you like to be at 99? Be happy with 98. I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's a different, more hands-on approach uh, to the manufacturing world now to sort of uh, embrace them a little more and make sure they're ready to succeed with your solution. So this is as much a, a personal question coming from someone that spent most of their career as an account manager in manufacturing. And this actually goes back to something you mentioned very early on in the interview where you said, hey, at the end of the day, whether I was in business development and sales or in customer support, customer success, I mean, we're at every function, we're trying to help make the customer successful, right? But where I see maybe industrial companies struggle, whether it's manufacturers, OEMs, distributors, what have you, is with this new thing called customer success. I think it's creating some confusion on, hey, what's my role, right? Because I think there are a lot of sales folks out there that have spent their career taking on a lot of customer success Absolutely. functions, a lot of that reactive stuff. Yep. When maybe they should be in a role that's more just proactive, like I'm looking for the next new customer, the next new account, right? So I guess my my question then is, what's the right way to make sure you're segmenting between what sales and business development and account management should be doing versus what customer success should be doing? Because I feel like that's where many people out there listening today might be in their journey right now. Yeah, that's a fantastic question. And you're right. That's that's one of the um, kind of decisions you, know, you have to make with your customer facing teams. And uh, and the, the truth is there's more than one right answer. So at the end of the day, to me, the, the best answer is internal communication from the company. So now within Bright, for instance. So the way we manage it is we put together account teams. So there is a, you know, there's an account executive account owner for every every one of our customers, but there's also a customer success uh, person responsible. And, and really it's a matter of uh, communication, who's got the ball. Um, it, with, with Bright, we figured it out, you know, uh, pretty, pretty clearly where the lines are. And with other companies and other products, it may be a little more challenging, but, but the idea really is to make sure the customer is best supported. And so for account executives in a lot of, a lot of industries, They've got the ability to uh, raise a flag. They can say, hey, the customer's really upset. Things are going on. Um, but they may not have direct access to the professional services team or the, you know, the, the, the exact right person in software that has seen that bug before. So the, you, know, you don't want to put too much on their plate with regards to managing the, the proactive customer relationship things, but you want them involved. So, you know, um, for me, the customer success person should be taking the lead on sort of the, the proactive communication on performance of the line, um, the proactive, uh, you know, check on, on whether they're happy or not, uh, you know, all of those things, the salesperson or account executive, they're there to be uh, at, at the high level, they can raise that flag. They're also there at the meetings, they're aware of everything that's going on. They don't have to get down in the mud of technical kind of uh, discussions when they happen, but they can be there for an escalation path if they need to. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's a team, you know, it's gotta be a team. You, you don't want to build a silo where this guy has aftermarket and this guy has the, has the land, you know, as the landing order and then that's it. 
to me, that's dangerous. And that, that happens at a lot of companies because then you, the customer gets two companies they're working with and suddenly the relationship is not as intimate. There's not as much um, cohesive messaging. And so it's, it's kind of a mess. So again, for companies that want to embrace this and I recommend they all do, it's just internal communication. You just make sure who's got the ball. And if you want your account executives to be the customer success person, that can work. It can work, uh, but then they've got to be more in tune to the organization and they're probably going to do less prospecting and less, you know, they're going to be more of a farmer uh, than a hunter. Uh, but that, that can work. It just depends on your customer base. That's a great answer because you gave some specific you gave some specific things people can be focused on, right? And I think one of the biggest things I heard you just say was, hey, you got to define what the roles are, right? Because there's not necessarily one way to do it. There are probably best practices out there. But if you define the roles and you have the communication and you continue to work together, right? You don't want customer success and sales being in different silos. There are a number of different ways you can make it work. I love that answer. So, um, well, hey, you've given us a lot of great advice throughout this conversation. I've got, I've got one last big kind of overarching question before we, we do a little wrap up here. But, you know, we went from reshoring to sustainability to customer success, heard your story, software-defined manufacturing was a big part of our conversation throughout today. You know, one one more world according to Sean uh, question is, you know, how are you seeing technology and, you know, whether it's machine learning, AI, computer vision, cloud, I mean, how are you seeing this shift the way manufacturing operates today? Maybe it's another story, maybe it's a general observation, but just, you know, I'd love to hear something that just kind of puts a wrapper around what we talked about today. Yeah, no, it's a it's a good question, and I I do see a um, I, do, I see a major shift uh, kind of happening now. And um, for the last you know ten years or so, lots of discussion around Industry 4.0, and then you know digitalization and the AI and machine learning, and lots of products that have come out. What's happened over the last again two years, and again I think this has a lot to do with um, you know the the world supply chain problems we've had is that manufacturers are now sort of saying, we need something that works. Like ever, you know, there's all these companies that, that have buzzy words that sound a lot alike and they've got products that are kind of cool, but give me something that works and that I can approach uh, without completely turning my business upside down. Like how do I get into this? And what you're seeing now is there are, there are solutions. There's companies like Bright Machines and other companies out there that can give you an approachable solution where you can start you can start with automation. You can start with with the data from your from your line, um, and 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 then go from there with things that work. So you know, I'm not saying products in the past didn't work, but there was um, th there's a lot of focus on point solutions as opposed to kind of full stack platform solutions. And I think now what what manufacturers are providing or what what solution providers are providing is is the full stack solution. That works. You can put it on. You can put it on the floor relatively easy. The training is relatively easy. Common user interface plays nice with other things, and it's producing value. And then what's happening from there is we're seeing a lot of customers that are that are saying, "Okay, AI, machine learning, that sounds great. How can this automation system tell me when I'm, I'm starting to build defects and then fix those defects in real time? That's meaningful, you know. Or and and so. Um, don't just show me better graphs and data, show me a solution that actually stops me from building bad product. Show me a solution that can trace my bad product 
down to uh, the reference designator on the on on any part in the process, and I can go back to that supplier. Um, but it's got to work, and it's got to be accessible. And that that shift is happening now. Where those solutions are now, I think everyone's got a little more honest. Here's what it, here's what it actually is. Here's how it works, and here's how you get into it. And then it's going to deliver real value. And then and that's what manufacturers are asking for. You know, they they don't want to be burned again by a point solution that was hard to integrate. They need a full stack, and and it has to add value. And that's that that shift is happening now is sort of like the early adopter phase is over, and now we're into you know real product phases, which is which is wonderful. I appreciate all the fresh, specific perspectives you brought to the show today, Sean. Is there anything that in this cornucopia of topics we covered today that we that we didn't cover or that you wish I would have asked you? Yeah, reshoring, upskilling, uh, software defined. No, I think we hit them. I hit, we hit most of them. Customer success for sure. Yeah. You know, the only thing that's, I think, uh, kind of having a bit of a renaissance right now is design for manufacturing. Like, I think there's also a lot more willingness for uh, manufacturers to reconsider their product de- design to, so that they can, they can uh, ex- access the benefits of manufacturing. That's just a general comment, but I'm, I'm seeing a lot more focus around. Uh, designed for manufacturing, faster NPI. Um, so it's not just a developer finding cool things to put into the product. It's what can I put in my product so I can make sure I can automate it um, and be more sustainable. That that could be a topic for another day. But that you know that I'm seeing a lot of focus on now, which hadn't been a huge focus for a lot of our manufacturing customers, say five years ago. Well, there's no doubt we could have turned this podcast probably into four different podcasts with uh, with what we covered. But if I'm looking at our island loggers, they're getting a little low, so it's probably about time to uh, to head back to the sandbar for a refill. Sean, what's the best way to connect with you and Bright Machines? So yeah, Bright Machines, you could reach out to Sean Murray at brightmachines.com. You could always check our, uh, our website, of course. And um, uh, there's plenty of ways to reach Bright. Just Google us. You'll find us. We're on social media too, so you'll find us on on Twitter and uh, a variety of other places. Well, I keep seeing the name pop up more and more excited to to feature you and Bright here on Manufacturing Happy Hour. And I just want to say, Sean, thanks so much today for jumping on the show. Yep, it's been a pleasure. Kind of wish I was drinking a beer now, but uh, I can wait. And uh, no, it was a good time. Thanks, Chris. Well, hey, mission accomplished then. So with that, cheers. All right, take it easy. Hey, thanks for listening, and thank you to Sean and Bright Machines for making today's episode possible. Also, I want to give a shout-out to Vlad Romanov and Dave Griffith. I gave him a mention earlier in the interview, but if you're looking for another great manufacturing podcast that gets a bit more into the nuts and bolts of automation and technology, definitely check out their show, The Manufacturing Hub Podcast. You can find that in the show notes page at manufacturinghappyhour.com slash 129, plus links to Bright Machines, Sean's LinkedIn, all the usual stuff. Two more quick things before we wrap up. First, a shout out to today's sponsor, Traction. Traction is empowering frontline maintenance teams through their machine monitoring solutions, and if you want to learn more about them and what their company is all about, I highly recommend jumping back just a couple episodes ago to episode 127 and hear the story of their founder, Igor Marinelli. He was on the show. We had a great conversation. 
Again, check that out. Thanks to Traction for sponsoring this episode. And hey, if you enjoyed that episode, if you enjoyed this episode, or if you're enjoying Manufacturing Happy Hour in general, hey, if you can leave a five-star rating and review over at Apple Podcasts, over on Spotify, wherever you're listening, that greatly helps boost the show and helps get it into more ears of manufacturing leaders like you. So hey, we had a good long conversation today. I gave you a couple calls to action. And with that, I think it's time to start wrapping things up. Stay innovative, stay thirsty. We'll catch you here next week on Manufacturing Happy Hour. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Manufacturing Happy Hour. Powered by the Industrial Network.